uh, Leah and I got back last night from a four-day trip, kind of for our anniversary, to Sedona, Arizona, in the Grand Canyon, um, and it's, it's beautiful there, beautiful there. Yesterday morning, we were halfway up one of Sedona's kind of famous red rock formations, and we were climbing that, and I looked over, and I said, can you believe that in 24 hours, I've got to preach? <laughs> so... I don't know if I'd say I'm glad I'm here, but I'm sure glad you are. Uh, oh, it was beautiful. And, and how many of you have ever been to Sedona? I know several of you have. It's, it's just gorgeous. Uh, I was reading somewhere about Sedona the other day uh, that, that if God made the Grand Canyon when he was done, he went and lived in Sedona. Uh, it's that kind of beautiful. And what, what makes it really remarkable is, is a couple of things. One is uh, that it has these rocky uh, red rock formations that just tower and that are surrounding the city so that anywhere you go in Sedona, you think to yourself, this has to be the most beautiful view I've ever seen. And then you go to the next place and you go, actually, this, this might be that, that place. Uh, and you walk all around and you see all these things. Uh, but the other thing that Sedona is famous for uh, is spiritual vortexes. Uh, and if you're not familiar with it, if you've been there, you know there's, they're trying to sell you on this all over the place, tours of spiritual vortexes, maps, guides, all of it. Uh, and it's a very spirit-infused community, lots of spirituality from all kinds of different religions and faiths and no faiths. Uh, but there's several key places, and a spiritual vortex uh, is, in, in theory, uh, a place that you can go to that has a special energy that rises up out of the earth, and it's kind of swirling all around, and it's invisible, and for many people, imperceptible, and some people can perceive something there, and some people can't. Uh, and so when you go into these, these places, they also happen to be uh, really the most beautiful parts of the city. And so when you get to these places... Um, you can, if nothing else, enjoy unbelievable, unbelievable beauty. But at the same time, you have all these people from all over the world that will travel to these places to sit here in hopes that they will experience something spiritual. And so you have these, these I mean, you hike up there, uh, and it's, it's kind of the desert, and it's hot, uh, and you hike up there, and, and there will be laying next to you someone who's just laying on the rocks, just hoping to feel something spiritual. You'll have people that are sitting in, in meditation poses with their legs crossed, and they're just, they're just focused and just trying to receive something, have an encounter with, with the divine or encounter of, of the energy of the earth or something. Uh, one of the more interesting things I saw at one point, we were walking by, this lady, and, and, and she was, uh, she's from somewhere else in the world, she's holding onto this tree, and she's just, I don't know if she was trying to give energy to the tree or get energy from the tree, uh, but she's doing that, and this other lady walks up to her and just puts her hands on that lady, and so there's, there's like an energy train going on, I don't know what direction it is, but people from all over are traveling to these places to try and experience something spiritual, and what's really incredible is that, that all of that is happening in a time uh, when the world denies much of religion. That we live in a world that James K.A. Smith, who's a Christian philosopher who writes a lot about how people think in the world today, uh, he talks about how we live in a world today that is largely disenchanted. 
that, that in the ancient world, people would go out into, into the trees and they believed that the trees had spirits. And in the ancient world, they believed uh, that, that weather was a spiritual reaction or a divine uh, reaction to something going on in the world. They experienced good fortune and bad fortune as, as the gods intersecting with their world. Everything in creation used to be infused with an expectation of spirituality and divinity, that the, the difference between the spiritual world and the physical world didn't exist like it does in our minds today. And because of that, he describes the world that we live in today as disenchanted. We think that a tree is a tree and a rock is a rock, and gods may or may not exist, but we don't expect them to have anything to do with the world that we live in. We don't expect God to ever show up. And so you get people all the time today that'll say, well, I'm a very spiritual person, but I don't believe in God or religion. But that's the world that we live in. And I think that it's even more problematic when we have people going to Sedona, Arizona from all over the world to try and have an encounter with the spiritual why Christians all over this country go to church and don't expect to experience anything spiritual. Isn't that a problem? That, that there are people that are laying on rocks in, in Arizona right now that have a greater expectation that something spiritual is going to have an provide them with some kind of an experience than Christians going to church expect to have some kind of a spiritual experience. It's a dangerous world where the world is disenchanted with God and is infused with the desire for the spiritual and that they don't think it has anything to do with church and Christianity. We've lost something. And over the last week, if you've been reading the Bible reading as we've moved into the first eight or nine chapters of Acts, what you see over and over again is that the apostles, as they begin to figure out what this world looks like in a world after Jesus got out of the grave, after Easter, after the day when everything changed, when they became convinced of the resurrection, what does it look like in the fourth day? And they start living it forward. What you see over and over again is now that Jesus has ascended, the Spirit shows up. The Spirit shows up. And today we're going to be looking at a lot of these passages in a lot of these scriptures because in a world that desires the spiritual and in a church that is so often naive about the spirit we've got to reclaim what the apostles experienced in the beginning of acts which is the spirit showing up and transforming them transforming the church and transforming the world that all of this was happening in the holy spirit should make a huge difference but we don't tend to expect what's promised. And I want to look at what is promised in Luke and Acts specifically. In Luke 24, starting at verse 45, uh, Jesus has, has already uh, been resurrected. He's appeared to the disciples. And in verse 45, it says this, Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of all sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. 
What a thing for Jesus to say. I'm going to go away, but when I go away, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. He's promised that he will give this to you. And so just wait a little bit until you receive power from on high, because that is what has been promised. And when you receive it, then it's time for you to become witnesses from Jerusalem and to all the world telling them what you've seen. Luke begins Acts chapter 1 with a very similar idea. Luke chapter 1 and verse 8, he says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses and in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it's at that time that after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them, hid him from their sight. Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit is coming. He says, look, I've got to leave you. I can't stay here with you. But when I leave, one is coming. And when he comes, you will receive great power. And that power is going to drive you to spread the message about who Jesus is and what he's done in all the world. It's going to change the world because of the spirit that's living in you. Can you imagine what it would be like to have Jesus say that to you? To be standing there and to be told by Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of God, that when he leaves, he's going to send you power. And that you're then going to continue the work that he's begun. It's going to be your job to have his kind of power living inside of you that you then live it forward in all the world. And the world's going to respond to that. What kind of an incredible burden would that be? And how much excitement would you have in that? And the responsibility of all of it in that moment. Can you imagine what it would be like to be told that? The very next chapter in Acts chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Peter's preaching and he says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And in verse 17 he says, in the last days... God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Peter says, guys, a time is coming when God's going to pour his spirit out on everybody. And they're going to be infused with the Spirit. And the Spirit will come into them and it will empower them. And they're going to take the message all over the place and bring the kingdom everywhere they go. There's no limit to what God is going to do when His Spirit comes into all the people. And you can't help but start wondering, wait a minute. If you're, this is your first time to read Acts and you're thinking, wait, is this Holy Spirit just coming on the apostles? Because suddenly it starts to sound like it's going to come into everybody. It might be for me. This might be what I'm called to do and how I'm called to live. And then Peter, to make sure that it's very clear, says in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And suddenly you realize 
Jesus says to his apostles, when I leave you, I'm going to send you what God, my Father, has promised you. That the message for me today and you today and every one of our children who someday believe and are baptized is this, that the promise is for you too. That the promise of the Holy Spirit is for us. And that the Holy Spirit should come into us and begin to shape us and begin to send us and to begin to change not only us but everything around us. That we are going to be given Holy Spirit power. And yet we expect less spiritual experience and interaction on a Sunday morning than someone laying on a rock in Sedona. We have an expectation problem. We have a problem with not thinking that God's going to make good on his promise or that the promise isn't as big of a deal as Jesus made it sound or that Peter preached at Pentecost. And by the way, that sermon was given in languages that every single person that was in his audience could hear in the language of their hearing, of their speaking. And this is Peter preaching in the same Jerusalem where just recently he was running and hiding, denying that he even knew Jesus because he was terrified. The Spirit has moved him from fear to courage, from hiding to standing in front of a crowd and proclaiming. And he says, listen, it's not just for me. Everything that I'm doing right now is for you. That's the promise. But we've got an expectation problem. Peter's telling the crowds that it's for them, and Luke is telling us that it's for us. So why don't we expect the Spirit to show up? Why, why is it that we don't expect the Spirit to show up and make a difference in, in our lives? And I've been thinking about that this, this past couple of weeks, and I think that part of it is because the reality is that when it comes to being vessels for the Holy Spirit to fill up, and there's a passage in Scripture that talks about how we are but treasures uh, we're both just treasure stored in jars of clay. We're these vessels to which God pours unbelievable things into. But when we uh, think of ourselves as being vessels for the Holy Spirit to fill up, I think we come to Christ as pretty dinged up vessels. You know what I mean? That, that life can beat us up. That sin can beat us up that grief and despair and looking at all the stuff that's going on in the world can leave us exhausted. And so when we come to the Holy Spirit and, and God tells us, here's the promise that I'm going to make you, and Jesus says, the Father's promise is real, we come to that moment pretty beat up. We come to Christ as pretty chipped, broken, and cracked vessels. Sometimes we don't feel like we could hold water, let alone hold the Spirit of God. And yet in that moment is when Scripture tells us that we're put into the potter's hands. We're put into the potter's hands and he takes us and he begins to repair us. And the way that he does that is by pouring the Spirit in, even when we feel like we aren't even good enough to hold it. He pours the Spirit in and the Spirit starts to shape us and transform us. It repairs us. It restores us. It renews us. It makes us whole again so that we can hold not just water, but we hold the Spirit. We get cleaned up. We get repaired. We're made whole. And so it's then that we're ready to take all of that 
that experience of brokenness made whole by the Spirit, that experience of feeling like we aren't good enough to be made uh, adequate and confident by the Spirit, that we're ready then to take uh, the transforming Spirit that's now within us to the world. But we've got to do some work, because even though that happens, we struggle to believe that it could be true. We, we struggle to believe that we're good enough and, and I don't think this is unique to us. I think that the apostles at the beginning of Acts are struggling with all the things that we struggle with today when it comes to being good enough vessels of the Holy Spirit. And I think the first thing that we struggle with is, I think, in my heart of hearts, in my, my deeper thoughts, I'm too flawed, I'm too imperfect to possibly be the one that Jesus wants to take his spirit to the world. We don't think we're good enough. We think we've got too much stuff in our, our past. We're too imperfect. And, and don't you think the apostles could relate to this? Here Jesus says, here when I leave, you stay in Jerusalem and power is gonna come on you. Don't you think that they said, on us? Power come on us? Jesus, it was just a couple weeks ago that you got arrested in a garden and we scattered. You couldn't find us. We were hiding under every rock and tree and, and nook and cranny of Jerusalem that we could find. We scattered. It was the moment that you needed us to be the most faithful to you, and we doubted everything, questioned everything, fled just to save our lives. Peter has to think, I, me? Power come on me? I denied you three times. To people that were a big deal and, and people that weren't. A servant girl asked me if I was one of your followers. And I looked at her in fear and I said, no, I don't know him. The servant girl terrified me so much that I denied that I knew Jesus the Messiah. I went to the tomb and I saw the empty grave clothes laying there. And I didn't even have the confidence of the women who went away with with excitement and faith to tell other people. He says, I just left with wonder. I wonder what happened here. What, what does this even mean? What could it mean? Thomas is, is standing there as Jesus tells Thomas, power is going to come on you and you're going to become my witnesses to the end of the earth. And Thomas says, Jesus, I, listen, the women told me, Cleopas told me, the other apostles told me that you were uh, alive, and I told them, I don't care what any of you says. I don't care what Jesus told us would happen or how you're explaining it to me. I'm not going to believe any of this until I touch the wounds. I, I will not believe. Jesus says, listen, I'm going to give you my spirit. Don't you think that these apostles, Peter, Thomas, and all the others, had to be thinking, we're not, we've got too many problems, Jesus. We're not worthy. We've got too many mistakes in our past. You know, each one of us knows our darkest moments, the stuff that we don't want to admit even to the people we love the most, and maybe especially to the people we love the most. We know our weaknesses. We know our flaws. We know all the reasons that God should pick somebody holier than me to pour his Holy Spirit into to take it into the world. But so did Peter and Thomas. So did Cleopas. So did, uh, so did all the apostles. If they're in the upper room, the Spirit comes in them, and they go out at Pentecost, and they proclaim that Jesus is coming, and the promise isn't just for them. It's for all of those who will be baptized and believe that you're not too imperfect for the Spirit to use you. 
You know, I think sometimes we get caught up on being too unqualified. I don't know enough. I'm not skilled enough. I don't have the right abilities or the right talents. Certainly there's other people more capable, more qualified, more schooled, more educated than me to go and deliver the message of Jesus Christ, to be the spirit-infused vessels that take this into the world. Doesn't he have someone more qualified than me? And I love... Uh, one of the occasions in Acts, and there's plenty of these where this happens, where uh, the apostles are on trial. Uh, and here you have, uh, in Acts chapter 4, uh, Acts, you, have, so you have Peter and the apostles on trial before the Sanhedrin. Peter and John on trial before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. And here's what it says. Uh, the Sanhedrin seized the courage of Peter and John. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That's what we're called to. That's what we're called to. It would have been easy for Peter and John to have said, listen, I think if we start preaching, everyone's going to say, these guys are unschooled, illiterate tradesmen. They don't know anything about the law. They don't know anything about the Torah. They don't know anything about the prophets and the Psalms. What are they going to do if they get called before the Sanhedrin? And Peter and John had to be thinking, Jesus, listen, we've been with you, but don't you want people that are schooled in the rabbinical studies? Don't you want people that have, have taught Sabbath lessons? Don't you want people that know the Torah frontwards and backwards? He said, no, I want you. He even tells them at one point, don't even bother preparing. It'll be better if you don't. You just get in there, and the Spirit's going to give you what you need to say to speak truth to the people that need to hear it. So Peter and John stand up before the Sanhedrin, and they start preaching. And the Sanhedrin says, these guys don't know what they're talking about. But look at their courage. Look at the power with which they're speaking. Look at what, what, what is going on. And the best answer they can come up with is, They've been with Jesus. And wouldn't it be great if, if the world would say that about us? Listen to that church. Listen, they don't, they don't know the most. They haven't studied the most. They don't have the most skills. Where is this power and courage and proclamation coming from? We know it's the Spirit. What if all they know is, I don't know, but did you know they've been spending time with Jesus? Because the Spirit comes in you, and it doesn't matter if you're skilled enough or qualified enough to say what needs to be said. Jesus took a group of tradesmen and he said, just spend some time with me for a few years and when I leave, I'm gonna send the spirit and that's all you need. Don't worry about the rest. And I think some of it is we're just waiting for the right moment. And the apostles struggle with this too. We're waiting for the right time. And I love this, it's in the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter, chapter one, verse eight. This is when Jesus is actually ascending. And I, I can't help but wonder, when it comes to important ascensions in, in, the, in the history of Israel, there's nothing more important than Elisha watching Elijah ascend into heaven. And so as Jesus tells them, I'm going to go to my father, and he begins his ascension, and he says, you're going to receive a spirit that's going to come on you in power. They have to be thinking, are you talking about Elijah and Elisha? This sounds a lot like Elijah and Elisha. We've heard this story. 
And if you're not familiar with the story of Elijah and Elisha, uh, the short version is this. Elijah was the, the master and Elisha the, uh, the disciple. And, and as Elijah was going towards the time that he would be taken up to God, he's telling Elisha, you've got to be ready to take my ministry when I'm gone, which sounds familiar to Jesus, right? And, and he says, is there anything I can give you when I leave? And Elisha says, give me a double portion of your, sp- a double portion of your spirit. And he says, listen, here's, what, here's how you'll know if you're going to get what you've asked for. If you see me when I ascend, you're going to get what you've asked for. And Elisha does. He sees Elijah ascending. And a portion of Elijah's cloak falls to the ground. And when he picks up the cloak, he receives that double portion of Elisha's, Elijah's spirit, power. He begins doing miracles and other incredible things. Verse 8 of chapter 1 of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was, when he was going. They're just watching. And they're watching. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. There's this moment here where the apostles are just looking up at the sky and they're waiting. And you can't help but wonder if part of what they were waiting for was if a part of his garment would fall. They've been arguing forever about which one of them will become the greatest, and maybe if they can catch the garment, it'll be them. They'll receive the double portion of the Spirit because they're still thinking, we're too imperfect, we're too unqualified, and what does it even look like when we're supposed to start? And they're looking up at the sky, and two men in white, which is Bible code for angels, show up and say, what are you waiting for? Go to Jerusalem. Get to work. Stop waiting for a sign from heaven that you're about to begin or move to what's next. And I think we live in that space sometimes, that that we believe in the resurrection, we believe in the ascension, but we're so busy looking up at the sky that we forget that it's time to get to work. That, That we, like the apostles, are waiting for something to come from heaven that indicates it's time to get going. Maybe I'm, maybe if, even if I buy into this idea that I'm not too imperfect and I'm not too unqualified, how do I know that right now's the time? Give me a sign. And here's the sign. It's a voice of two men in white standing there saying, uh, excuse me, quit looking up at the sky and get to work. And they go back to Jerusalem and they start doing the things that they know they ought to be doing. And suddenly the spirit shows up in power and they begin taking the message to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the world. When the Spirit shows up, we struggle to expect the Spirit in the same way they did. I'm going to move quickly through a couple of of passages. What happens when you get over your lack of expectation? What happens if you say, okay, God, I'm ready. I'm ready to be a Spirit-infused vessel filled with you, ready to be shaped by you and take you into the world. What does it look like? Let me give you a couple of things. Uh, In Acts chapter 4, what we see is that uh, when you become a spirit-filled vessel, you have Peter and John in front of the Sanhedrin, 
And here's what the text says. Then Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin, and they begin to question them. By what power and what name do you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. Okay, this is the same Peter who's standing in front of the Sanhedrin now. A couple days ago was too scared to tell a servant girl in their courtyard that he believed in Jesus. Now they say, tell us by what power you've healed this man. He says, listen, if we're here on trial because of a kindness we showed to a man, let me tell you by whose name we do this. Know this. You and all the people of Israel know this. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God has raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Let me tell you exactly whose name we do this in. Jesus of Nazareth, who you killed and God raised from the dead. Whoa. Spirit shows up and you're not afraid anymore. The Spirit shows up and you keep talking about God and you can't stop talking about God. This is the same chapter, a little bit lower in verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Just, they're like, listen, we can't prove that what you're saying is wrong, so here's what we want you to do. Just stop. Stop preaching Jesus. Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you, to listen to him. You be the judges of that. We won't worry about it. You tell us whether we should listen to you or listen to God. But as for us, as for us, as spirit-filled vessels, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We can't help it. When Jesus is going into Jerusalem several weeks before, and all of the people and the apostles and the disciples are praising him, and they're worshiping him and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and some of them come and tell Jesus, tell your followers to quit praising you. And he says, if they didn't praise me, then even the stones would cry out. Because the Spirit is like that. It doesn't need the best people. It just needs people with the Spirit in them. Because you can't quit telling people about Jesus when you're a Spirit-filled vessel. You keep talking about God. We don't have time to get into the full implications of this, but one of the other things that comes up very clearly at the end of Acts chapter 2 is Spirit-filled people don't cling to their stuff. They're open-handed with their stuff. They share it with people who are in need. They have courage. They talk about God. They're open-handed with what they've been given because they see it as God's stuff given to them to use for his good purpose. Spirit-filled people cannot be silenced or killed. This is the message of the whole Stephen story that, that you would have read at length this week if you were reading, and it's in Acts chapter 7. And here's what you need to know. Stephen preaches the gospel in this incredible sermon. It's one of the longest sermons in the New Testament. And he gives this sermon, and he proves to them that this is the fulfillment of all that they've been waiting for. And the Sanhedrin is so mad when he finishes his sermon. They cover their ears, and they start screaming like crazy people. If you're reading your Bible, what it, what it says is that the rulers of Jerusalem hear this sermon and start going, na, 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 na. That's in the Bible. He says, this is the man that you crucified and who God resurrected. 
And they're so furious, they grab him and they start to haul him off to kill him. And it's in this, the midst of this chaos that Stephen looks up. And in the spirit, he sees God in his glory. And in the spirit, Stephen sees Jesus seated at his right hand. And they become so furious with this man who is so filled with the spirit and telling them everything that they're doing is wrong, has courage, and he won't stop talking about it. He's willing to give not just his material possessions, he's willing to give his life. And they start stoning him. And you know what Jesus says? Just Stephen says, sounds like Jesus. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then the text says, then he fell asleep. Then he fell asleep. And here's what Luke wants you to know when you're reading Acts and you get to this story. And here's what God wants you to know when you get to this story. If you are a spirit-filled vessel, part of the reason you have so much courage and you can't quit talking about God and you're willing to give everything is that you know you cannot be silenced and you cannot be killed. The worst that the powers of this world can do to you if you are a spirit-filled person is this. They can put you to sleep so that you wake up with Jesus. That's the worst this world can do to you. We worry all the time. What if, what, if we, what if Christian influence is gone? Who cares? Get courage. Keep preaching. They can't hurt you. Well, what do you mean they can't hurt me? They can do all kinds of mean things to you. The worst they can do is kill you, and if they do, you wake up with Jesus. Not a bad day. powers of this world are powerless over people that are filled with the Spirit and who understand the gospel. The Spirit takes broken, chipped vessels in the hands of the potter. It makes us whole. The Spirit moves us to action and mission. The Spirit gives us the words and the courage to say them. It gives us an, uh, an incredible desire to preach and to preach and to speak, and to teach, and to talk, and to share, and to give over and over and over again, because we know that there's nothing the world can do to us. The worst it can do is put us to sleep, and we wake up with Jesus. What are you afraid of? Expect the Spirit to show up, and when it does, don't be worried. Just be filled and get moving. Stop waiting for a sign, but take the words of the men who said to the apostles, get moving. The Spirit is coming. Be ready. And when the Spirit shows up, get on board and get going to where God wants to take you. Because here's the truth, that the Spirit's going to inspire a message in us formerly broken vessels, that God's not going to leave this broken world the way it is. God's not going to leave his broken people the way they are. God's not going to leave you where he found you. He's going to fill you with his spirit, transform you, make you whole so that you can start pouring it out on the world around you, changing everything to look more like heaven and less like this fallen world. And if you're ready to get to be a part of that, to where your life starts to look more like heaven and less like this fallen world, come forward this morning. Let's get moving in that direction. Let God do what God passionately passionately wants to do in your life so that you can begin doing it in the world. Come forward this morning as we stand and sing.